G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. We are the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. This week, we're finally, finally making a start on an analysis of the text of Genesis 5. That introduction to the chapter was uh, was hard work, but we got through it, hoping it's all smooth sailing from here. That's right, Chris. It was a pretty full-on start to the season. Four episodes of study into the nature of genealogy, the issue of chronology, and the use of numbers in Genesis 5. It's just about enough to fry anyone's brain. Yeah, I think we were definitely feeling it by the end of that third episode. Oh, yeah, and then there was more. Um, yeah, in, in summary, what we learned is that Genesis 5 uses symbolic numbers to represent the patriarchs as kings rather than describing them in verbal form. That's why the number 60 features so prominently as a factor in the ages of the patriarchs. That's why the numbers are so big. The original data that formed the basis of the genealogy was also used by the scribes of the Sumerian king list, but neither Genesis or the King List depended on each other. They were just derived from a common source. And the Sumerians, whether accidentally or intentionally, greatly exaggerated the time span. We're going to see shortly that there's a bit more overlap between them than just the number of kings and the representation of the total span of time in the lists. Oh, really? Pray tell. Next week on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Hey, wasn't it Superman's birthday this week? I had to try to do that, but uh, yes, I love it when we talk about Superman, and I was going to mention it if you didn't. So yes, he is 85 years young. Happy birthday to the favourite superhero of mine, Superman. Happy birthday, Supes. All right, yeah, we noticed that while it's not uncommon to have the ages of patriarchs in a genealogy, it's rare to have the ages at which they had their sons, and... It's that feature which transforms the genealogy into a chronology. So we get not only a thematic and biological connection between the first man and the flood hero, but we also have a timeline oriented toward a specific point. And we found that the timeline presented by the Septuagint is oriented toward the institution of the worship of Yahweh at the dedication of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. The span of time in the Septuagint chronology covers 4,260 years from creation to the temple a number that reflects the total dominion of Yahweh as 60, which is the number of kingship, times 70, the number of divine and human totality, plus another 60 to show the superfluous dominion of God overall. It's that information that should tell us loud and clear that the Sumerians never received that portion of the genealogy that functions as chronology. There's no way that the original manuscript that gave rise to both the Sumerian king list and Genesis 5 actually featured the begetting ages of the patriarchs because all the evidence points to that information being inserted at a later date for the purpose of making a theological point oriented toward the true worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Yeah, that was pretty cool how you were able to show that from the timeline that we were looking at last week. Yeah, and we also learned that the common assumption that the Masoretic text of the Bible preserves the true timeline is actually not based on facts. And that text has suffered some corruption at the hands of anti-Christian scribes over the years. But fortunately for us, the original message of Scripture was preserved in the Greek translation from the pre-Christian era. That's not a claim for inspiration of a translation. It's just saying that the message of the inspired original is preserved only in the translation in this case. We don't have the original Hebrew text from 2,500 years ago, 
that means that for the purposes of our study here, we're going to be using the Greek more often. We also discovered a different agenda behind the translation in the Samaritan Pentateuch, which was designed to support the idea of worship at Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem. So in spite of the Samaritan cult and Talmudic Judaism, we still have the tools to find the truth of Scripture. We have the technology. Yeah, and the truth is that the original chronology pointed to the first temple, but once the true worship of God in the temple was abandoned, resulting in exile from the Promised Land, a new timeline presented by the prophet Daniel pointed the way to the Messiah right down to the very day that he was welcomed into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. The primeval chronology pointed to the kingship of Yahweh through the son of David, King Solomon, and Daniel's prophecy pointed again to the kingdom of God in the new son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what, Tim, it really doesn't sound that complicated when you put it like that, but I guess it's just a lot of work to be able to arrive at those conclusions. Yeah, it certainly is. Anyway, it's time to move beyond all that and turn our attention to the first man in our genealogy. We're talking about Adam, the biblical first man, the one who was created by God as the first bearer of God's image. And that means for the first time in a while, we actually have some biblical text to read and to pick apart like a delicious dead kangaroo on an outback highway. Yeah, gross. That's a joke, by the way. Kangaroos are delicious, but not when you find them on the side of the road where they've been rotting for weeks. Kind of like this season. Let's try and inject some life back into this show and get back into Bible study. This is Genesis 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. And I've decided that for the remainder of this season, I'm going to do our regular readings from the New English translation of the Septuagint. So we get the original numbers presented. And if you want to know why I think the numbers in the Septuagint are the original numbers that are supposed to be in the Bible, you need to go back and listen to the last few episodes because I'm not going to explain all that again. Here's the reading from verse 1. This is the book of the origin of human beings. On the day that God made Adam, he made him according to divine image. Male and female, he made them and he blessed them. And he named their name Adam on the day that he made them. Now Adam lived 230 years and became a father according to his form and according to his image, and named his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth amounted to 700 years, and he had sons and daughters. And all the days of Adam that he lived amounted to 930 years, and he died. Okay, uh, well, it looks like roughly a good start with Adam because we already have a fair bit of his backstory from Genesis 1 to 4. That should help us to understand his story here in chapter 5. Yeah, it certainly will be of some help. We're still going to have to be careful that we take the text on its own merits as well so that we don't make any assumptions or gloss over anything that the author of Genesis 5 is trying to tell us. Having said that, I think it will be beneficial to go back and look at some of the things that we have learned about the first man before we proceed. And I suppose the first thing we need to think about is that Adam is called the first man because he is the one individual who was specifically created by God. That's a loaded phrase because for those of you who have been following this podcast for a long time now, You'll know that the word created doesn't mean anything like what we tend to think it does in modern Western terms. If your frame of reference for the concept of creation is anything to do with Western materialist civilization in the post-Platonic age we live in, you're already way off base. We're talking about creation as the dominant paradigm of the ancient Near East with regard to the establishment of order and function in the world. I haven't got the time to go over all that again. Once again, if you're interested in getting a biblical definition of creation rather than the definition that your culture has ingrained in your mind, I suggest that you go back to the early episodes of the podcast where we talked about it a great deal. So that was like back in season one. And what you should come away with after considering the consistent use of the Hebrew term bara, which we translate as creation. It's the idea that the creative act is not one of 
material origins, but instead it's instituting divine order, purpose and function of things that already exist so that they work as part of a larger system of order. That means that when we talk about Adam as the first man, the one that God created, what we're really saying is that God chose this man from an existing population of humans and gave him a higher calling above selfish impulses, which was the functional representation of God in the world, in flesh. And essentially that's going to come down to the love and concern for others. That existing population is seen in the text in the phrase, dust of the ground. And again, that's something I don't have time to go into now, but you will find it adequately explained back in season two of the podcast. But even if you're not going to go back and listen to those episodes, at a minimum, you need to be aware that I don't mean that God didn't create everything in a material sense. I just mean that material creation is not being communicated at all in the book of Genesis. You can find that in the New Testament. Yeah, that's right. And if I remember correctly, you were saying that we have John chapter 1 and Hebrews 1 and 11 to make the, the point about material creation so we don't need to find it in Genesis 1. Yeah, that's right. And some might argue with that and say, well, in the text that you just read, it says this is the book of the origin of human beings. So there can't have been people before Adam. And I'm just going to respond to that by saying that since the author is writing from the perspective of a post-flood point of view, in which it is assumed that it's only the people descended from Noah and his family that survived the flood, and since Adam is shown in this genealogy to be his earliest known ancestor, then from that perspective, it is quite reasonable to say that all mankind owes their existence to Adam. So God created Adam in the sense that he was set apart by God for the purpose of representing him. That makes Adam functionally a body of God because he's become the means by which God acts in the world. Adam is the first image of God established in the material cosmos. And as the archetype of all humankind, he represents all of us before God. Adam's task in the mandate to be fruitful and multiply is to communicate to all people their responsibility to honour God by also assuming the role of an image bearer. And this is where we have to be careful because Genesis 5 is not developing that story of Adam, the archetype. It's not? Nope. Here in Genesis 5, Adam is an individual. He does not represent humanity on the whole. This is Adam's own personal story. And we can see that reflected in the later use of Adam as a character in Second Temple Period texts, and in particular the New Testament, where none of Adam's story is connected to Genesis 5, except for his part in the genealogies presented by the Gospel writers. So we've got Adam on his own here. He's now in his own story, which only goes for five verses. And in a nutshell, the main purpose for including the story of Adam here is to show a biological connection between the institution of the image of God and the rest of the human race that descended from that first man. We need to know that he was real. We need to know that he was historical. We need to know that he was biologically connected to Noah, the flood hero, and therefore connected to everyone who came after, specifically through Abraham and the patriarchs. And as I said earlier, we also need to know that the installation of the image of God in the cosmic temple is directly connected chronologically to the establishment of the earthly temple built by Solomon. I see, and that's why we had that whole issue with the timeline. Yeah, and these things are important because, as we know, in the following chapter of Genesis, after this genealogy, is the story of the sons of God and the Nephilim and how they made an attempt to destroy the image of God in the land through the corruption and eradication of humanity. So that connection between the institution of the divine image in humankind and the persons of Noah and Abraham and following is of the utmost importance. And I say that because although I wrote an entire book and dedicated more than a decade of my life to researching the story around the Nephilim, and what they attempted to do in order to corrupt and destroy humanity, I'm quite happy to acknowledge that it's not the central narrative of Scripture, and it shouldn't be treated as such either. 
it's far more important that we grasp the theme of representation of God as a functional reality, because that's what's going to guide our thoughts, govern our conduct, and steer our destiny toward Jesus, who's the ultimate realization of that purpose. And we're going to find that Genesis 5 is instrumental in bringing that message, actually both messages, forward into the flood narrative. Of course, I've created a problem for myself now because having mentioned this apparent connection between Adam and Jesus, what I've accidentally done is created a situation where, in the mind of listeners, there's now a direct connection between Adam and Jesus. And therefore, everything in between has to be pointing to Jesus because we know the end goal, we know the destination. And that's really unfortunate because it's going to cost us a lot of important insight along the way if we can't maintain focus on what the original purpose of the text was. Because we've said it before and I'll say it again, while the Hebrew Bible story reaches toward Jesus, it wasn't written by its human authors with Jesus in mind. The author of Genesis isn't sitting there with a stylus in his hand, thinking about how he's going to tell a story that connects to Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus, never heard of him. And we're just going to have to be comfortable with that. That could be a tough pill to swallow for some people, though. Yeah, as we go through Genesis 5, we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that this genealogy connects Adam to Noah, not to Jesus. It's only later that this genealogy gets stitched into the fabric of the story of Jesus. Because like all storytelling, it has to come from the present time and tell the story of the past. And that's exactly what I've been saying about genealogies from the outset. You can't use genealogies to predict the future. And even chronologies like what we saw with the way that the Septuagint authenticates the worship of Yahweh at Jerusalem, they're of no help when it comes to predicting the future. Look at what we've been saying over the last couple of weeks about how people would rather butcher the sacred scriptures instead of admit that the interpretive framework they'd constructed around the text was leading them to a conclusion they didn't want to accept. And people are still doing that today. Look at the young earth creationist crowd and the fixation with material creation in Genesis. They need that to be there. Because just like the rabbinic Jews in the post-Christian era, they've got a timeline to defend that begins with Adam at point zero. They've got a millennial understanding that lines up with the days of creation. And in their view, if that timeline doesn't work out, then the whole thing's a sham. They're counting on creation around 4000 BC, which is four days out of seven. Then we've had almost 2000 years since Jesus' resurrection, which is another two days of creation. And that means that according to their timeline, very soon we should see the return of Christ and the beginning of his millennial reign. That all sounds great until we remember what came out of last week's discussion, which is that the Masoretic text has got the numbers wrong. And that timeline is out by more than 1,000 years, which means those 7,000 years have come and gone already. And obviously the big thing that everybody was waiting for didn't happen. And this is why I took the trouble to go through all that material last week, because the argument as presented by Smith in the paper that I referenced last week is compelling. If you're going to argue against the Septuagint, then you need to explain how and why the numbers that it presents could have been artificially inflated. But that means you have to explain how it is that Genesis 11 matches between the Septuagint and the Samaritan Pentateuch, despite the lack of intertextuality. That means you have to explain how it is that there are no ancient witnesses to support the idea of inflating the Septuagint chronology. It means you have to explain how the Septuagint, which was dispersed all over the known world over a period of hundreds of years, somehow managed to have matching numbers in almost every copy of the translation. And if you still hold to the idea that the Septuagint was corrupted by Egyptian influence and pressure to conform to Egyptian worldview, then you have to explain why the Septuagint still doesn't conform to Egyptian timelines, cosmology or theology, and doesn't have anything like the vast span of time presented in Egyptian literature. Then you've got the fact that there's a substantial volume of work published by credentialed scholars who point to the fact that the numbers presented in the Septuagint are authentic because of their connections to the earliest Hebrew manuscripts of the original Hebrew Bible. 
And after all that, you'd have to explain how it came to be that so many ancient witnesses in and around the first century, be they Christian, Jewish or otherwise, bear witness to the fact that the Hebrew Bible originally contained the same chronology presented in the Septuagint. And that doesn't even get into the idea of motive. Nobody has any kind of credible theory that could possibly explain why anyone would intentionally corrupt the Greek translation to such a significant degree. And unfortunately, the same cannot be said of the Masoretic text, which is the one on which all these millennial understandings are attached. Now, I recognise that for a lot of listeners, this is really quite troubling because you had your eschatology all worked out according to this neat plan, and now I've come along and cut the anchor away from the boat. Now, let me just say for the record that I still think there needs to be a real millennium on Earth. With Christ reigning over the world, I just don't think we have any solid biblical evidence that we should be able to calculate that timeline. Now, I realise that I probably come across as quite harsh and perhaps a bit blasé about the whole issue of upending the fundamentalist or dispensational worldview. And I apologise about that, but as I've learned time and time again over the course of my 30 years of walking in the Christian faith, and, and I started out as a dispensational fundamentalist myself, you just can't argue with the biblical text. I mean, wrestle with it by all means, but you've got to be so careful about which foundation you build your house on. You just can't afford to build your framework of biblical interpretation on an eschatology that requires a corrupted biblical manuscript in order to work. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, you certainly do. Uh, you've got a habit of doing that. Um, we are supposed to be talking about Adam, and instead this episode is started to feel more like part five of the introduction of Genesis 5. Getting deja vu over here. Sorry about that. So, yeah, getting back to Adam and the actual text of Genesis 5, and the first clue in the text that we're dealing with a new narrative is the way that it's introduced to us. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And we've talked before about this idea of the structure of Genesis being divided into 10 sections known as Toledot. We've already had the first one, which covers chapters one through four of Genesis. So this marks the second of these 10 stories, and it's the only one that's introduced to us as a book. Now, we're not talking about a book as in some kind of bound volume with a cover and pages inside like what we used to today. Actually, books in that form were invented thanks to the Bible itself and the necessity to keep so much information together in one volume drove that technological innovation. But really, this is just a reference to a written work, and it probably took the form of a scroll. But it's actually quite a short piece of literature in itself, so it would have been no trouble to inscribe this on a tablet. The original was probably inscribed on a tablet. Anyway, the form doesn't matter. The point is that we have a reinforcement of the idea that this is a written record. And that goes a long way toward establishing something of a manuscript tradition, which we saw evidence of when we looked at the fact that the Sumerian king list has some common elements which likely derive from the same tradition at an earlier point. So again, that means common source material that gave rise to these divergent traditions. And again, it shouldn't bother you about where that came from, because the doctrine of inspiration is really only concerned with the biblical text as received. It doesn't matter where it came from. The Bible authors use all kinds of source material in their work, and we have to be a bit more robust in our convictions than to allow that to sway our faith in the text. Okay, so what is the author actually doing with this text? Now, when the author declares that this is the book, what he's doing is placing a stamp of authority on this narrative. He's telling us that this is the definitive record of truth, and he does that despite the awareness that we still have symbolic language and that kind of thing in play. It's not a claim to modern literalism as the authoritative interpretation. It's a claim to truth in the spirit in which it's intended to be understood, as communicated by the author. In other words, it's not your interpretation that's inspired, it's the text. And the author is telling you that this is the text, this is the authority. This is the standard against which your beliefs and presumptions and judgments will be evaluated because they rise and fall on the authority of this text. Never mind what the Babylonians are teaching, Never mind the stories that came from the pagans in Canaan. Never mind the propaganda that still echoes from Egypt. 
This is the text. This is the authority. This is the foundation on which the legitimacy of the worship of the Most High God is established. It's absolute. It's definitive. And as we've already seen over the last four episodes of this season, you can't argue with it. This is the way. This is the way. So now we're going to see what proceeds from Adam in a story that reflects the true genealogy of his line, as opposed to the fake genealogy presented in Genesis 4, which was aimed at presenting a theological message rather than a historiography. We're still going to see theological messaging in Genesis 5, but it's not anywhere near as highly developed as what we saw in the previous chapter. Nevertheless, this author still has a lot to say. He goes on to make a restatement of the creation of man, and we have that clear connection to the text of Genesis 1 in the use of specific language around the creation of man. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So we've got those really clear connections there which bring more unity to this story overall and show the connectedness between the first and second Toledot. We've already talked in considerable detail about the ideas presented in those words, so we're going to keep moving. Then we get to the fun bit where we start tackling the numbers in the life of Adam. And as I've already made abundantly clear, we're going to be using the numbers found in the Greek translation for reasons that I'm not going to go over again. Now, Adam lived 230 years and became a father according to his form and according to his image and named his name Seth. And it's that 230 years that is different to the text that most people have in their Bibles. Yeah. Now, just to get the ball rolling with the interpretation that we're going to bring to the rest of this chapter of Genesis, I'll go through the pattern of usage of the numbers and explain a bit. But as we proceed in subsequent episodes... I'm going to do less and less of that because I'll just be repeating myself. And you all know by now that I'm not really fond of that, even though I do it a lot. The age presented at the begetting of the sun is not intended to be taken literally. It's only there because it provides part of a chronology that tells a theological message concerning the authority of the institution of the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem at Solomon's temple. Outside of that, I am not convinced that this particular statistic has any other interpretive merit. I don't mean to say that you can just ignore the numbers as long as you get the point because... You don't get the point unless you have the numbers. But I think it will suffice to say that from here on in, I'm not going to be offering some kind of interpretation of the number provided for the age at which each patriarch had their son in the genealogy. I don't see any evidence or rationale for those particular numbers having any special significance outside of that chronological framework. Once again, just to be clear, and even though I hate repeating myself, the number isn't there to be taken literally. It's there to make a theological point. The Bible is inerrant in all that it affirms, and the trick for us is establishing what those affirmations are and not confusing them with the face value statements of the words on the page. The message presented by the numbers in the beginning ages of the patriarchs is a chronology that leads us to a symbolic number with a profound theological message about the legitimacy of Israelite worship of Yahweh at the temple in Jerusalem. And even though they no longer have a temple, and as Gentile Christians, we don't even need one, that doesn't change the fact that this inspired message still speaks to us today concerning the situation of the first audience of this text, as a people who eagerly awaited the re-establishment of that divine institution. And as Christians, we too long eagerly for the re-establishment of the complete rule and reign of God over all of creation. Our understanding of what that looks like is different to what the exiles in Babylon and Persia had in mind, but that isn't the point. The point is that God rules over the entire cosmos, and our task is to make his rule felt on the land and to represent him as best we can. Now, you know what I found interesting about the creation language here in Genesis 5? What's that? It's that while God made Adam according to his image and his likeness in Genesis 1, it's only the likeness and not the image presented in Genesis 5. And yet when Adam has his son, the son is said to be in the image 
and the likeness of Adam. And I don't think that looks good for Adam. You don't? Nope, because he hasn't produced a son in the image of God. He's produced a son who represents himself. And once again, we're back to the language of human kingship. This is not a good sign. And it immediately tells us that Genesis 5 is not going to be a record of good guys as opposed to the bad guys in Genesis 4. It isn't? Remember that Genesis 4 was never intended to be a literal genealogy of the real generations of people descended from Adam. Certainly there were some real people involved in the text. I'm not about to suggest that there wasn't any concrete fact behind the text of Genesis 4. Again, the inerrancy of the Bible is connected to its affirmations and not the face value definition of words on the page. But the whole point being made was one centred around what comes of rebellion against God. And that was made manifest in the sin and depravity that followed from that fateful decision. So that sin and those consequences had to follow in people that actually were related to Adam because they've got to come out in some real people somewhere. And as I said, some of those people in the story of Genesis 4 may not have actually been historical individuals. So it makes sense that we're going to see as we go through Genesis 5 that not everybody in this line of descent is going to come up smelling rosy. Yep, that does make sense. And Seth, whose name, as we've already discussed last season, means appointed or perhaps planted by God, was seen as the replacement for Abel, who was murdered by Cain. At least that's the way that Eve looked at him. But it seems that in this story about Adam and his lineage, it's all about cementing Adam's position as king. And we've talked before about the way that came through in his relationship to Eve and the bearing of his first son. Now, in his third son, Adam is looking to re-establish his legacy. And again, the chronology presented by the Greek translation preserves a theological point that will undermine his efforts. And our text goes on with the standard formulation of the genealogy, which presents the remaining years of Adam's life and the fact that he had other sons and daughters. And I might just mention for those who came in late that we don't need to have the mention of other sons and daughters there to answer questions like where Cain got his wife from. Again, this ties into what I mentioned earlier in this episode about the fact that Adam was selected from a vast multitude of human persons, which is something that I elaborated on in some detail back in season two of the podcast. So we've been introduced to Adam and to his successor. We've had the chronological details inserted and we've had the little mop up with the remaining years and the other children, yada, yada, yada. Now we get to the good bit because the chronology that is preserved in the Septuagint is only concerned with the age at the beginning of the sun. It has almost nothing to do with the actual age that each patriarch lived. So the question is, Adam, why are you so old? And this is the part where the numbers actually do convey some meaning on their own. This isn't part of a larger interpretive scheme. Each patriarch has their total age recorded, and as we've discussed earlier, those total ages will add up to a figure that corresponds in some way with the total length of reigns presented in the Sumerian king list, except that Adam doesn't have a counterpart on that list. Doesn't? I mean, I knew that. Of course he doesn't. Yeah, remember in the Sumerian mythology, the first man is a guy called Adapa, and yes, I know it sounds a little bit like Adam. We've been over this already, but the point is, that guy isn't on the list. There are only eight names in the Sumerian king list before the flood, and the ones that are missing are the first man and the flood hero. So no Adam and no Noah. Or if you like, no Adapa and no Zeusudra. I don't like that. Give me Adam and Noah any day. Adam's got his failings, but part of his claim to fame is in the fact that he gets to be the king before the king list. And yet again, this establishes the text of this Toledot as the definitive story, because it now shows a tradition that stretches back further than the Sumerian king list by virtue of that extra generation. So that's a real poke in the eye for the Babylonians. Anyway, getting back to the numbers thing, literally the text reads, and all the days that Adam lived were 900 years and 30 years, and he died. It's interesting that Adam has another unique feature in his portion of the genealogy. 
because he's the only one who gets the specific terminology that says the days that Adam lived rather than just the days of such and such were so many years. And I think this is just another affirmation on the part of the author that we're talking about a real historical figure. It doesn't need to be repeated for every generation down the line because being placed at the start of the genealogy, it sets the tone for the rest. The author seems to consider that it's more important that the mortality of each generation is emphasised. And that's because the total lifespan of each patriarch is going to be expressed in terms that are once again connected to the symbolic use of numbers associated with kingship. So the way that the text expresses this total lifespan is firstly 900 years, followed by 30 years. 900 is 15 times 60. We've already talked about the number 60 and its connection to kingship. It's hard to say why there are particular multiples of 60, but we could speculate that it has something to do with the size of the kingdom, or perhaps it bears some relationship to the length of time that he really was actually the king. Maybe his kingship lasted for only 15 years. These are symbolic numbers, and while there must be some kernel of truth in there somewhere, we haven't got it all figured out. Whatever the case may be, we are dealing with some kind of expression of kingship in some way. And this comes from an original text that sadly has been lost for thousands of years, so we may never know. I actually think that the number of years of the reign of each king multiplied by 60 makes a good deal of sense, but again, that's not something we can really hang our hats on. Speculation does not a hat rack make. What? Never mind. And then we come to the number 30 after that 900. This is where I believe the biblical scribe is able to possibly impart some meaning that goes beyond simply a reference to kingship. And the number 30 does have associations with kingship, which we find with David, and we also see it in the book of Judges in association with Samson. Technically, he wasn't a king, but a judge. However, the author of Judges seems to be communicating the idea that Samson was being treated like a king. Oh, wow. I didn't, didn't even know that was there. That's actually something that I picked up from listening to Emily on the Faith and Other Oddities podcast. Yeah, the more you know. But there's another thing that comes up with the number 30. We also see the number 30 expressed as a period of mourning for the loss of a great leader. The people of Israel mourned for 30 days after the death of Moses. So there's a touch of sadness associated with the use of the number 30 in this text. But perhaps the biggest statement being made by the author is coming through in what he doesn't say. Well, it's only a small chapter. I guess there's uh, a lot he doesn't say. <laughs> yeah, um, obviously the 900 years and 30 years brings us to a total of 930 years. And since we're dealing with Semitic scribes who use a decimal notation system for numbers, it follows that the ideal number would be considered as 1,000 or 10 to the power of three. Adam's life falls short of this ideal number by 70 years. And as we know, 70 is in itself a significant number because it represents the divine council. 70 presents as seven times 10 which communicates the idea of the divine rule over the totality of humankind. We've talked about that a number of times in the past. And this idea of falling short of the ideal by 70 years seems to tie in well with the idea that Adam lost his place in the council of God through his fall in the Garden of Eden. It was his passivity in the temptation of Eve that showed that he was not ready to take his place in the courts of God or to function perfectly as God's representative in the world. He'd been set apart for that role and brought into the presence of God for that purpose. And he found that he fell short. If the number 30 does represent the sad loss of a person who had seen God face to face, then it is certainly fitting. And the lack of those 70 years shows that he'd fallen short of earning his place in the divine council. As if to reinforce the fact of his mortality and his failure, the story of Adam concludes with the record of his death. And that's going to set the tone for most of the genealogy as it continues through chapter 5, which is important because it stresses the fact that these kings were not divine and not immortal. It's a stark reminder of the cost of that disobedience in the Garden of Eden, which still echoes today and resounds with all of us. And it reminds us, as if we needed reminding, that not all is well with the world and that we are in need of a saviour.
Indeed. And that's where we're going to leave it today. And when we come back next time, we will study the next generation in this genealogy. But now it's time for answers to your giant questions. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. So we have a question from Dorothy, which came in via our website, giantanswers.com, concerning the Holy Spirit's baptism and exactly what that is. Yeah, that's a great question. I love that question. Thanks for asking, Dorothy. What I'm actually going to do in order to answer that question is I'm going to backpedal a little bit. And before we get to what is called Holy Spirit baptism, I want to talk about other stuff that kind of falls within that big umbrella of stuff that we're told that we have to have if we want to be saved. Because Holy Spirit baptism is one of those things. This is one of those neat little questions that doesn't have a neat little answer. Let's start with the idea of being born again. I don't want to do a lot of talking about this. What I really want is for the Bible to speak for itself. So we're going to read a lot of scripture because I want you to see that I'm not making this up. And if you're taking notes, then you'll be able to refer to these scriptures, which means that if anybody tries to tell you something different, you can back yourself. And that's important because there are a lot of people who will try and interpret this in different ways. Let's start with a quick reading from the Gospel of John in chapter 3. This is verses 1 to 9. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, I've got another reading here from Luke's Gospel, this time, chapter 16. And we'll read from verse 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. 
He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So we were reading about Nicodemus earlier, and Jesus talked about this idea of not being able to see the kingdom of God unless one is born of water and of the spirit. But this rich guy is able to see the kingdom of God, and yet he can't get in. And yet Lazarus does get in. What that tells us is that being able to see it isn't the same as getting in. Now we're going to turn to 1 Peter and read from chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, Peter seems to be talking about people who haven't yet seen the revelation of Jesus, and yet they are receiving salvation as an outcome of their faith. Let's keep that in mind as we keep reading further down in the same chapter from verse 22. So again, this is 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. There's that... uh, that phrase being born again, which uh, we, we had earlier, where have we heard that before? That was Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He said we must be born again. And Peter says that being born again means to be born of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. I'm going to suggest that in the translation, word should be capitalized. Now let's have a look at First Peter chapter 3 and that weird passage at the end of the chapter from verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It's starting to sound a lot like this idea of being born again and having newness of life. We're talking about the same idea. And Peter makes this connection with the idea of baptism. So now it's beginning to sound like being born again, being saved, having newness of life, and being baptized are all somehow connected. Let's go back to John chapter 1 from verses 29 to 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, John the Baptist sees Jesus and says that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Wasn't there something in that story of Nicodemus about being born of water and of the Spirit? Maybe the Apostle Paul can help us bring these ideas together. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, from verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul is now talking about being dead to sin and baptized into Christ Jesus by baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, this sounds very much like being born again. And this baptism sounds very much like the baptism that John the Baptist was performing and which Jesus also came to perform. Seen a lot of connections here. And Paul has more to say in 2 Corinthians. We're going to read from chapter 5, uh, just verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what's this idea of new creation? It sounds very much like being born again, don't you think? And we've already seen that being born again is connected to this idea of being born of water and of the Spirit. But are we sure that we need these things? Mark seems to think so. Here's Mark chapter 16, verses 15 to 16. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. That sounds very much like belief and baptism are both required. In fact, it sounds very much like getting baptized is kind of how you show that you believe. But is it really that important? Is Mark the only guy who seems to think this matters? Jesus thought it was pretty important too. I guess that's why he put baptism in the Great Commission. So in Matthew 28, we read this. This is Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus told his disciples to make disciples and to baptize the disciples and to teach the disciples to follow his commandments. And what were Jesus' commandments? Jesus told his disciples to make disciples and to baptize the disciples and to teach the disciples to follow all his commandments. And what were Jesus' commandments? Jesus told his disciples to make disciples and to baptize the disciples and to teach the disciples to follow all his commandments. And what were Jesus' commandments? Jesus told his disciples to make disciples and to baptize the disciples and to teach the disciples to follow all his commandments. And what were Jesus' commandments? Sorry, I kind of got stuck there, but I think you get the point. Baptism was a commandment of the Lord Jesus. You have to be baptized and you have to make disciples and baptize them too. That's a commandment from Jesus. Sounds important. Peter obviously thought it was very important too, which is why he brings it up in Acts chapter 2 
in his speech at Pentecost. So Acts 2 from verse 36 to 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, so in this situation, once the people realize they need to be saved, they ask Peter what to do. And what does Peter say to them? Does he say, oh, well, as long as you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that's all right. No, he doesn't say that. He says, repent and be baptized. He says that this is for the forgiveness of sins. He says that they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter says that being baptized and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit are going to happen along with the forgiveness of sins. Let's have a look at another story told in the book of Acts. This time it's not Jewish people, but Gentiles who are listening to Peter. This is from Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So what happened this time? Peter is speaking, then the Holy Spirit comes upon these people who believe him, and they get baptized in water in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, we have water baptism and Holy Spirit baptism and belief in Jesus all happening in the same situation. Those specific things seem to happen in a different order, but they still all happen in the same context. What about another example? Let's have a look at Acts chapter 16. This is the bit where Paul and Silas were in jail, and then an earthquake came and destroyed the prison. So Acts 16 from verse 29 to 34. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So this time the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe. But then he doesn't just believe, he gets baptized. Why are those two things always together? Maybe Paul can tell us a bit more about that from his letters to the Ephesians. Guess what? He's in jail again. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Are you getting the impression that all of this stuff is coming together as one? Because I'm pretty sure that's exactly what Paul is saying. You see, when Nicodemus asked Jesus how he could be born again, he was thinking about physical birth, and yet Jesus told him, you must be born of water and the Spirit. But he doesn't say how. It's like people were supposed to know what being born of water actually meant. It's like when Jesus said to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things, that Nicodemus was actually supposed to know what that meant. And it seems that lots of other people in the Bible know what that means because when they talk about baptism as going from death to life, when they talk about new creation, and we look back at Genesis 1 and the way that creation involves something coming up out of the water, it's like it should be the most natural thing in the world to think that being born of water means to get baptised. And somehow every time people get baptised in the New Testament, it's associated with this faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And every time people receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's in conjunction with this faith and repentance and baptism in water, even if those things happen in a mixed-up order, but they always happen in the same context. It's kind of like what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, is that being born of water and of the Spirit, it's pretty much the same thing, because it all happens together with faith and repentance. So what is baptism in the Holy Spirit? It's part of what happens when you make a declaration of your faith in Christ and your repentance by getting baptised. So what's the point of water baptism if it's just about faith then? Can't we just believe and receive the Holy Spirit and that's enough? Well, I don't think it is enough. And I say that because you have to understand what baptism is. Baptism, in case you didn't pick it up in all those scriptures, is what brings you into the body of believers, the body of Christ. When you get baptized in Christ, into Christ Jesus, you're becoming part of a community, part of a group. You don't do that on your own. That's not a public declaration of your faith. Water baptism is the thing that you do to show the community that you're a part of what's happening. You become loyal to Jesus Christ. You're showing your allegiance in a public setting with witnesses. And that public witness is important because it helps to keep you accountable. It's an encouragement for you to be in the presence of others who've also made a public declaration of the same faith. So if you got baptised in water and made a public declaration of repentance of sin and your allegiance to Jesus Christ, then you don't need to worry about getting baptised in the Holy Spirit. Like that's some kind of separate thing that's going to happen later. You're already there. I hate to burst the bubble of expectation, but if you're waiting for some magical feeling to overtake you and make you feel like you just got spiritualized or something, you, then you're looking for something that satisfies your own emotions and the passive nature of the flesh. You don't need some amazing feeling. If you're loyal to Jesus and you declared it publicly, then you need to understand that the Holy Spirit alone has brought you to that point because you've received the Holy Spirit already. And you might be saying, so what's the deal with the water? Do we need to be baptized in water? Can't I just accept Jesus and repent and receive the Holy Spirit and that's enough? Well, I thought it was clear enough when Mark and Jesus and Peter and Paul all said that you must get baptized in water. But if you need another reason, then go back to what I said earlier about creation. What baptism represents is a new creation. In Genesis, when the land appears and all the waters are gathered to one place, it's because the land is rising up out of the water. It's rising above the chaos and disorder that the waters represent. It's coming out of the realm associated with death and into the place where life can begin. And you go back and look at all those passages where we talk about baptism, and you can see that imagery in play all the way through because it's a biblical motif. That's what ancient people thought about when they got baptised. It wasn't some kind of embarrassing public pool party with a dunking involved. It was about becoming a new creation 
and declaring that boldly in the presence of witnesses. So again, all this stuff goes together. Water baptism is the representation of being a new creation or being born again. And you can't separate that from being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So the act of baptism is not just a symbol of all these things we've been talking about, it's participation in those things. And participation is important because that's the only way that you get to be included in what everybody else is doing. Baptism is all about community and being together with Christ and his church. So when you get baptized, you're participating in the new creation. You're participating in salvation through water. You're participating in the death and resurrection of Christ. And in all of these things, you find that you're a new creation, saved and born again through the Holy Spirit, who also brought Christ through death into life. If we're being honest with the biblical text, we really can't get away from the idea that being born again or getting saved is the process of repentance and faith in Christ, which is demonstrated by baptism in water and accompanied by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not to say that all this happens in an instant and that you get saved immediately and that you have a guaranteed future inheritance with God. Remember that Jesus talked with Nicodemus and said that being born of water and the Spirit was necessary to see the kingdom of God, but we also learn that being able to see it is not the same as being able to enter it. And you also can't enter the kingdom of God if you're not born of water and the Spirit, so you're not getting in without having participated in these things. But all of that means that getting baptized isn't the same as guaranteed salvation. Even believing isn't the same as guaranteed salvation because all of this stuff is connected to loyalty and faithfulness. If you become disloyal, if you become unfaithful, if you turn away from belief, then you've become an apostate. You may see the kingdom of God, but you will not enter. So bearing in mind that this is all connected to loyalty and faithfulness, remember that Jesus commended several people who were faithful and yet did not participate in these things. The thief on the cross is the classic example. Does he get in? Yes. Was he baptized? No. Did he become faithful to Jesus? Yes. Did it matter that he couldn't get baptized? No. Would he have gotten baptized if he hadn't been getting crucified at the time? Yeah, absolutely. And there are other examples, but we're running out of time. So I realized that was a lot of reading and a lot of jumping around in the Bible. You can look up those references later if you want, but I think I made my point. All this stuff goes together. Don't turn it into a faith versus works argument. If you really are faithful to Jesus Christ, you will get baptized because it is a commandment. And as I said regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit, don't think that you didn't get it just because it didn't feel like magic or something. You go and read the New Testament, you're not going to find anybody who receives the Holy Spirit and says, wow, I just feel so amazing. It's like I'm energized now. I'm so alive. Wow, I'm on top of the world. It's not about magic feelings. It's about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who led you to this point of repentance and loyalty and faithfulness and believing in the first place, joining you with everybody else in the community of faith as part of the body of Christ. That's what you want. Now, I'm not your judge. I don't know if you've been there or not. You know, God knows. And if you got baptized publicly, then your local community of faith knows as well. But if your church is telling you that you haven't received the Holy Spirit after your public declaration of faith and repentance and allegiance to Jesus Christ, then you need to get out of there because that's toxic and a manipulative environment. And that is an anti-scriptural, anti-Christian teaching. You can do better than that. There are plenty of good churches around. But again, I can't judge your situation. That's something you're going to have to work out yourself. Hopefully you're not in that situation. And if you are, you do have my sympathies because I've been there myself. Anyway, hopefully that was a good answer for your question, Dorothy, and I hope it's made things plain and simple for you. Thanks again for asking. Yes, that was a great question and a very in-depth answer. So thanks, Dorothy, and thank you, Tim, for doing all that digging. 
We'll be back next week with more exploration into Genesis 5 as we look at the story of Seth. And, of course, we will have more of your giant questions. So make sure to come back next week. We'll see you then. And, oh, before we go, a quick shout-out to the guys from the Fringe Radio Network. The Fringe Radio Network is basically a place where you can find all sorts of awesome Christian content from a range of different podcasters, and that includes some of our mates at the Raven Creek Social Club who are there along with us. We've recently joined the network, and that means that wherever the Fringe Radio Network has distribution, you're going to find the answers to Giant Questions podcast. And that's great news because they've agreed to host every single episode that we've done, all in one place and accessible anywhere. So a big thanks to Daniel and the team at Fringe Radio Network. We're really happy to be on board with you guys and really appreciate all your work. Anyway, that's all we have time for, so we're out of here. See you next week. Thanks for listening. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless came in via the website giant answers don't uh no there's actually not oh okay that is the question it's just is that right okay um yeah three months and counting since i broke my arm and i still haven't been treated by the hospital well well at least you got a haircut so that's something yeah yeah i tried to hurry them up about it and they shaved the whole three days off the waiting period so uh, Three and a half months. It's only uh, almost three and a half months. Got a um, wedding next weekend, so that's down at Dunsborough. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm just like a ring in. I'm just replacing one of the grooms. Do you remember that time there was this guy who was was like a pharmacist and he was a really, like, neurotic kind of guy. At short notice, his fiance dumped him so he asked me to go with him to this wedding in Kalgoorlie. Um, no, why did I remember this? It, it was insane man. This guy just like really worried about everything to the point of really annoying, stress you out constantly asking if you thought things were going to be okay and you're like yeah I'm sure it's going to be fine like just stop worrying about it mm. and he was, he was just like that incessantly and he booked all this stuff for him and his fiance to go to this wedding and be in Kalgoorlie for the weekend. And then she's dumped him and then he's like, oh, well, you want to come then? And I was like, oh, well, we can in Kalgoorlie, you know, there'll be a party. Sure, why not? And then I realised 
He's booked flights and that, but he can't drive. He didn't have a license. So we get to the um, – we get into town. We didn't have any any transport. So he's like, oh, well, uh, we, we need to rent a car. Can you rent a car? And I'm like, well, at that stage, I was too young to be allowed to rent a car because you had to be 25. I was like, well, I can't rent a car. He goes, well, I can rent the car, but you'll have to drive it because I haven't got a license. I was like, uh doesn't really sound very legal. It's like, oh, well, you know, we haven't really got a choice. I said, uh, okay, fine. I'll drive the car. So we, we rent this car. It's like a – it was an old car even then. It was like a 89 Falcon or something, you know, bench seat, three on the tree, like, <laughs> you know, oh. Yeah. And, and I had to drive this thing. And my dad used to have a similar car, but it was like the next – the next model along and it was the top of the range and it had all the features. And I thought, well, it's a similar car. It must be pretty similar to drive. So I'm expecting, you know, really good brakes and decent performance and everything. I thought, well, you know, this will be an enjoyable car to drive. And we get in and then I realise what I'm dealing with and I'm like, oh, this is, this is like driving an old farm truck from the 70s or something. <laughs> I'd never driven a car like it. And we're cruising through Kalgoorlie. You know, the streets are really, really wide. Mm. The, the streets are so wide, I didn't even realise I was driving through an intersection until, <laughs> <laughs> until we wait next to me. Goes, no, that was a stop sign. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> Slam yeah. the brakes. And there's, it didn't have anti-lock brakes, so it just skidded, like locked up all the wheels. And we just skidded through this intersection like – probably way over the speed limit. We were just bouncing between cars. There's big ruts of the road. We just bounced up and down this old wagon. Oh, man. I fear for my life. Uh, and, you know, we get to the, the wedding and I'm just kind of standing around. I don't know anybody. People are going, oh, so who do you know, the bride or the groom? And I'm like, uh. <laughs> that guy. Yeah, we get the reception afterwards and everyone's, like, doing their own thing. And he was, like, a bit of a social outcast even at this thing. Like he was only there because it was his ex that he was with who was, who was like part of the, the, you know, associated with the with the wedding party. Mm. So he's turned up without her and I'm like the next tier down, you know, wedding tag along, like twice removed or whatever. <laughs> man, you're a nice guy. To say life, man. And then after the thing, we get back to the motel room and there's one bed. And we're like, um, okay, we're going to top tail this. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like put pillows in the middle. <laughs> so weird, man. Oh, oh, did I remember that? Yeah, that oh, sounds man. like an experience. Well, I won't be that Good bad. You, because I tell you what, I can't forget it. <laughs> Don't blame you. So I hope your uh, wedding that you go to is better than that.